What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about refugees after World War II and today with historian David Nassau. His new book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. First up, our political update today from Wisconsin. Of course, a key swing state Trump has to win if he's going to remain in the White House. Over the weekend, we feared the worst in Wisconsin. Municipal clerks were preparing to mail one million ballots to voters when the state Supreme Court halted the process and declared that maybe the Green Party should be on the ballot. They had been ruled off the ballot by the State Elections Commission. This threatened to bring delays, confusion, chaos to the state's voting, the sort of thing that Trump would like. For the latest, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. We reached him, of course, in Madison. John, what happened at the Wisconsin Supreme Court on Monday? Well, John, we got proof, or I should say at least a signal of the possibility that there is still such a thing as a rational conservative. And I know that's Tell hard us. to Tell imagine. We need to know about this. I know. Yes. It's, like, it's like spotting a, a, a creature that was thought to be extinct. And so the Wisconsin Supreme Court is made up of seven members. On Monday, the court comes out with a ruling at the very end of the day, and it is a 4-3 ruling against putting the Greens on the ballot, which meant that one of the conservatives on the court had to switch and vote with the three liberals. And that indeed happened. A conservative justice named Brian Hagedorn. Tell us about Brian Hagedorn uh, the hero of, of the hour here. Who is he? Why did he do this? I don't want to make him a hero, okay? <laughs> okay. And, uh, let's, just, let's just say he did the right thing at this moment. He, he determined in this case that the Green Party lawsuit had been brought too late and that whatever the merits of the lawsuit, and I think, you know, it's fair to say there were some merits to it, um, but whatever the merits to the lawsuit, because it had been filed so late in the process, it would have upended it, the election, not just for the voters, but for other candidates, for other parties. Everything would have been, been you know, turned upside down. And the argument that Hagedorn as well as the three liberal jurists on the court made was that that was too unreasonable a result. And so in a sense, they, they argued for a practical result based on the least harm to the vast majority of voters and, and candidates and et cetera. Is this the end of this? Are the ballots are going to be printed and, and we're on smooth sailing from here on in, or can this be appealed and more, more trouble might result? You know, I, I hesitate to say that this might be a happy ending, at <laughs> least for the voting thing. You know, look, the Greens are unhappy. 
Let me ask about the Green Party of Wisconsin. I know that in 2016, Jill Stein got 31,000 votes in Wisconsin. Hillary lost by 23,000. So, of course, the Democrats said, well, Jill Stein cost us the uh, state of Wisconsin. Do you think that's true? It's a little more complicated than that. Um, And it always is. Remember, with third parties, uh, they often have a base of voters that are that are sincerely for them and that that are going to vote for them. And if they're not on the ballot, might not even vote or might cast unexpected votes. And so I'm always very careful about trying to blame a political party for waging its campaign. Um, And in Wisconsin in 2016, I will offer you another variation you are right that the Greens got around 30,000 votes, but the Libertarians, if I'm correct, got around 100,000 votes. And if you look wow. at cross tabs in polling on the Libertarians, you found that a huge number of people who voted for the Libertarians did so on, you know, kind of a liberal social agenda, like being in favor of legalization of marijuana, being in favor of ending the drug war. And also a portion of people who voted for the libertarians because the libertarians take a very anti-war stance, as do the Greens. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be a little careful about you know, say, pointing a finger of blame at any one party uh, simply because they got votes. Yeah, I agree with you completely about third parties. The reason people voted in 2016 for, for Jill Stein was that they did not want to vote for Hillary. So it's not quite true to say, well, if Jill Stein hadn't been there, they would have voted for Hillary. So you recently, uh, well, oh, let me just uh, summarize the state of the polls on Wisconsin. The average of the polls right now have Biden at about 50 percent, which is what it takes to win, and Trump at 43.5. This is a six or six and a half point lead for Biden in a state that Trump won by 23,000 votes. And, and these polls, at least a couple of them, come after the whole explosion of protest over the police shooting uh, uh, Jacob Blake in Kenosha, shooting him in the back seven times, and after Trump came to Kenosha promising law and order. So it seems like Trump's law and order campaign in Wisconsin has not really moved the needle, as they say, at all. Is that right? That's right. In fact, the um, it was specifically stated by um, or I should say, at least uh, specifically applied, if there's such a term, um, by the the kind of gold standard poll in Wisconsin. That's the Marquette Law School poll. And they noted that while the protests were not as popular as they had been, you know, back in late May, early June, um, there had been no real shift in attitudes toward the protests from early August until mid-September. And that's our, that's our operative zone there because, uh, you had the two national party conventions. Then you did have the Kenosha shooting seven times in the back by a police officer of Jacob Blake. And then the protests that ensued from that, uh, which saw the, the shooting by a white vigilante of two protesters who were killed. Um, yeah. so, you know, there's a lot of turbulence there, but the, the bottom line is that the polling remained strikingly similar. You know, people, I, I think people had a, a, at least a lot of people had a nuanced view of it. And the sort of key element is as regards Joe Biden's numbers and Donald Trump's numbers, they remained almost identical. 
And I think what that tells us is is a, a fundamental reality of, of Wisconsin and, frankly, a number of other battleground states. And that is that people are quite locked in. There's yeah. obviously going to be a little variation. That can happen. That's why people worry about, you know, every single thing that happens, every single ballot dispute or, or delay or whatever. But at, at some fundamental level, it's it's now more a case of making sure that your people vote rather than the possibility that you're going to ship them. We've only got a couple minutes left here. I wanted to turn to your recent piece for The Nation where you write, Democrats have ignored cities like Kenosha for too long. Biden has the chance to speak to every one of them. Please explain your argument here. Yeah, I'm glad to. It's a piece I really spent a lot of time on. That Kenosha is very much in the news. It's a city of 100,000 between Chicago and Milwaukee, and it's a historic manufacturing center. They made cars in Kenosha from around 1903 until around 2010. It was a a great big union town, um, kind of a classic model of a small to mid-sized industrial city. Since 2010, they haven't been making cars anymore, and frankly, a lot of their other factories have been shut as well. There are, I argue in the piece, roughly two dozen cities that, you know, obviously there's variations in population that sort of fit that model along the Great Lakes. Starting over in Erie, Pennsylvania, bottom line is that this is a, Kenosha's pattern is actually a very common one. And that is a city that was, had a multiracial, multi-ethnic workforce that was um, upended by deindustrialization and where the Democratic Party didn't really give those cities a lot of answers in the aftermath of of that deindustrialization. And at the same time, the Democratic Party, which frequently in the 1990s, 2000s, embraced neoliberal responses and so-called reforms, um, often failed to deal with structural racism in the economy in the criminal justice system and in a host of other other areas where we can find it. And so that combination of failing to deal with um, deindustrialization and also, frankly, it, for a substantial amount of time, buying into policing responses and criminal justice responses that were incredibly harsh and, and frankly, uh, wrongheaded, uh, ended up creating circumstances in a lot of these cities where um, there's a lot of unresolved challenges, huge challenges. And so my argument is that Joe Biden, who went to Kenosha, and that was good that he went, uh, needs to keep listening to a town like Kenosha and other towns like it, and also needs to keep speaking to these places. Instead of fearing a backlash vote, what Joe Biden ought to be doing is talking directly about the need for policing reforms and the need for criminal justice reforms. And he shouldn't stop there. He should talk about structural racism and not be apologetic about it, not not be cautious about it. And in fact, say that, you know, Democrats got some things wrong over the ways. Obviously, Republicans have them wrong now. But a Democratic administration would seek policies as regards policing, criminal justice and economics and uh, jobs and the environment that lifts up cities like Kenosha and lifts up cities like Benton Harbor and cities like Erie, Pennsylvania. And these are the places where presidential elections are won and lost. 
because historically they produced huge numbers of Democratic votes uh, because the unions were very strong and a host of other factors. Now it is it's not so easy, but it is an opening because people still need they need answers. They need hope. And Biden ought to be providing it. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Great pleasure. Now it's time to talk about refugees after World War II and today. For that, we turn to historian David Nassau. He's written award-winning, best-selling biographies in the past of Joseph Kennedy, William Randolph Hearst, and Andrew Carnegie. We talked about all of them here. He's taught at the City University Graduate Center. Now he's got a new book out. It's not about powerful men. Instead, it's about some of the most powerless people in the world, stateless refugees. In this case, at the end of World War II in Germany, it's called The Last Million Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. David, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we have many books on survivors of the Holocaust, hundreds. But your book on refugees in 1945 starts out by making it clear that you are not writing only about the Jews. Holocaust survivors are part of the story, but there's lots of others who had been slave laborers. Of course, there were POWs. Let's start with the refugees who were not Holocaust survivors. Who were they? Where did they come from? The Germans knew very early on that in order to wage a war with millions of soldiers sent to the Eastern Front, they would have to replenish their labor force, which they did by importing Polish, Ukrainian, and other Eastern European young men and women, and then putting POWs to work in Germany. There were millions of guest workers, slave workers, imported into Germany during the war to work the farms, the mines, the mills, the factories. There was a second group of refugees who ended up in Germany when the war was over. And those were the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians, many of whom, not all, but many of whom fled their homelands in 1944 and 1945 because they had collaborated in one way or another with the German occupiers. And they knew that when the Red Army approached, as they knew it was going to in 1944, they would be in trouble. So they fled, often with the help of the German army, into Germany, where they hoped they would be safe. So we have the victims of fascism, and then we have a lot of people who, are, who we should not call victims of fascism. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the problem facing the Allies in 1945 was that most of the refugees could have gone home. Their governments, especially those in Eastern Europe, wanted them to come home. In fact, demanded that they be sent home because they needed workers. But these hundreds, of, how, how many refused to go home? Well, my book is entitled The Last Million. And that's because it was more than a million refugees 
who had been stuck in Germany when the war was over, refused to go home, or in the case of the Jews, had no homes to return to. And the UN Refugee Agency, you say, decided the way to resettle refugees who couldn't go home or didn't want to go home was for the agency to become an employment agency and sell other countries around the world on the idea that refugees would be good workers. Which refugees were considered the most desirable? The most desirable workers in 1946, 1947, 1948 were the Latvians, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, and some of the Ukrainians. And why? Because they were white because they were Protestant, because for the Baltic survivors, they had only entered Germany in 1944 and 1945 with their families intact. Unlike the Polish guest workers who had been in semi-captivity since 1940, or the Jew, Jewish survivors, the Latvians, Estonians, and Lithuanians were relatively healthy with a reputation of being hard workers who could take on manual labor. And it took two years for this process to really get moving uh, when countries around the world finally opened their doors to the DPs, the displaced persons. When, When that happened in 1947, which countries welcomed the Jews? No countries welcomed the Jews. The only country that welcomed the Jews was not a country yet, and that was the Jewish part of Palestine. And about 20,000 Jews escaped from the displaced persons camps and were illegally, illegally entered or tried to enter what would become Israel. Uh, The exodus was part of this illegal journey. No nation on earth welcomed the Jews. The United States certainly did not. Canada, Australia, Brazil, Argentina, you name the country. No one wanted the Jews. They were considered too clannish. They were considered likely to be Bolsheviks or communist sympathizers. They were considered to be too damaged by the war and constitutionally unable to do the work required of them. And they were forced to remain in the displaced persons camps in Germany for the most part, for three to five years, while the rest of the world debated what their future would be. So, yeah, the part of your book about American policy is the most infuriating, the most uh, upsetting, This is about, of course, the land of the free, the victors in World War II, give me your tired, your poor, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Uh, Congress passed, finally, a Displaced Persons Act in 1948. This is three years after the end of the war. Is it fair to say that bill deliberately excluded Jews and favored admission of ex-Nazis from Eastern Europe to the United States. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair statement. The bill was written in such a way as to give priority 
to those nations that were, quote, annexed by a foreign power. The only nations that were annexed in that way by a foreign power were Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. The majority of Nazi collaborators and war criminals who went to Germany were from Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. The bill also to make absolutely sure that no Jews were going to get into the country without saying Jews prohibited, put a 40% priority on agricultural workers. The number of Jews who were agricultural workers and in displaced persons camps was minuscule. You have a fascinating quote from Senator John Rankin, Democrat of Mississippi, who said he was opposed to admitting Jewish refugees for some conventional reasons. You've already cited them because the Jews bring with them, quote, communism, atheism, and anarchy. But he also included infidelity. I understand about communism, atheism, and anarchy, but I'd never heard about infidelity as a distinctive problem of the Jews before. Where did he get this? Where he got that was, I mean, it's the tragic situation of the Holocaust survivors. Families were broken up. And the only way to protect, preserve, and sustain a Jewish community was to have more babies. And in the displaced persons camps, Many young men and women married and had children, but because they refused, absolutely refused to be married under German law, they were considered, these children were considered illegitimate. So that's the only possible place I can think that, you know, ranking got this. You know, I don't want to try to explain what Rankin okay. was thinking. Okay. Beyond my pay grade. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you have an interesting argument that if we look at the people who who were behind the bill in Congress that excluded Jews, this was Midwestern Republicans and Southern Democrats. You said anti-Semitism was not their only motive. I was interested in that. They said, we don't want Bolsheviks here and all Jews are Bolsheviks. The age-old or the century-old Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy was resurrected in Congress. And it was said because all the Jews, 90% of the Jews who were going to come to this country were, had come from Poland. And Poland was now dominated by the Soviet Union. All of these Polish Jews were likely communist supporters or communist operatives. And uh, how accurate was that idea? It was totally, absolutely <laughs> inaccurate. I mean, and, and you know, one of these senators, uh, Senator Revercombe of West Virginia, visited the camps, and he found no evidence whatsoever of there being any communists in the camp among the Jews. So he said that was evidence that there were communists in the camps among the Jews. And they were hiding their communist sympathies until they got to the United States. And then they'd break them out into the open. Uh, when, it, when this bill finally came up for a vote in the House, you point out there were three future presidents who were members of Congress at that time. Kennedy, Nixon, and Johnson were all in the House in, in uh, 1948. How did each vote? Kennedy and Nixon voted for the bill. 
Johnson was recorded as present but not voting. Do you know what was the logic of, of, of each here? What did it mean to vote for? What it, did it mean not to vote? In the end, in the end, all of the congressmen and the senators were forced to make a, a terrible decision. They wanted to help the displaced persons and get them out of Germany. But in order to do that, they had to discriminate against the Jews. If they voted against the bill, that meant that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Polish guest workers who wanted out of the displaced persons camps would be stuck in those camps for forever. So the choice was between having a displaced persons camp, displaced persons act, which did not discriminate against the Jews or none at all. And even in the end, Harry Truman, who wanted there to be sizable Jewish immigration into the United States, he signed the bill and he signed the bill, he said regrettably, because the bill was discriminatory and un-American in its prejudice against Jews. So let's talk about the numbers here. How many Jews did manage to get admitted to the United States under the Displaced Persons Act, and how many anti-Semites, Nazi collaborators, and war criminals? Among the opponents of the bill were a large number of Jewish activists, uh, some of whom would later write for the nation. And they claimed, they claimed that no bill was better than any bill, because the bill as written was gonna keep out the Jews and allow the entrance into this country of Nazi collaborators and war criminals, which is precisely what happened. We have no way of knowing how many war criminals and collaborators came into this country because they disguised themselves and were able to sneak in under false identities. We do know that in the final analysis of the 250,000 Jews who were in the displaced persons camps, about 50,000 of them came into the United States eventually under the 1948 Discriminatory Act and the 1950 Act, which was less discriminatory. So now let's talk about other countries. Many countries did nothing about the displaced people, million, one million people in Europe, and many did worse than nothing. They took in Nazi collaborators and war criminals, which countries in the world took in the most? We simply cannot tell. What we do know is that by 1950, 1951, to take the United States as an example, there were no restrictions. There was no attempt to call out the Nazi sympathizers. But there were countries that did attempt to block Nazi collaborators and war criminals. Which countries were those? The one country that really took this seriously was Canada. And Canada had the Mounties. We think of them with, you know, their, their high hats riding horses. They went to Germany and they interviewed and interviewed very carefully the displaced persons from Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania and the Ukraine, and refused to let in those they suspected of being war criminals. The United States, on the other hand, in 1950, 1951, changed its regulations so that 
those who had been part of the Waffen-SS were allowed to enter this country legally. There's an extraordinary story about coming over on the boat, a man named Hermann Borenkot, who was a survivor of the, of the camps, saw on the boat a man who had been a camp guard in one of the concentration camps. His name was Albertus Boras. He told INS about this. INS stopped, put Boras in prison for two years, then released him and let him live a full and happy life in Connecticut. Though he had been and acknowledged being a guard in the Nazi concentration camp. Which countries admitted Jewish refugees after World War II? Which ones admitted the most? Which ones admitted the fewest? The United States, in the end, admits the most, by far the most. Second is Israel, Australia, second, third, fourth, Israel, Australia, Canada admit thousands, tens of thousands. So we say that Palestine, Israel, was prob- had probably the second largest I- immigration. Of course, there's one big difference in, in Palestine and then in Israel. The uh, DPs moved into houses, villages, and neighborhoods that had recently belonged to Palestinian Arabs who themselves then became refugees in 1948 when Israel became a nation. This didn't happen, of course, in Australia or Canada or the United States. What, What do you make of that terrible irony? The supreme and tragic irony is that the only place for the majority of Jewish survivors, of camp survivors, was Israel. And the only reason that they were admitted and welcomed into Israel was to increase the population of Jews. And the homes, the farms, the settlements where they were put had once been occupied by Palestinians. So to solve the problem of the Jewish DPs, Israel, with a wink and a nod from the United States and the United Nations, created a much worse displaced persons problem, that of the Palestinians. The Jews suffered enormously and then spent three to five years in displaced persons camps. The Palestinians had been in displaced persons camps since 1948. We're now in our second and third generations. Switching to the present, there were, in 1945, there were about a million refugees in Europe. In the world today, the UN says there are more than 30 million refugees. Some estimates have put it much higher. Uh, Supposedly over half of them are under 18. It was hard in 1945 to get countries to take refugees. Why is it so much harder now, do you think? The major reason why there are more refugees and why there is much less opportunity for these refugees to be resettled is that the refugees I write about, the World War II refugees, were white and for the most part Christian with a small minority of Jews. Today's refugees are not white, they are people of color and only a minority of them are Christian. 
So the people of the, the governments of the world argue that these refugees are unassimilable. The, the situation today is, is, is frightening because what the world believes and what the United Nations supports are putting these people in camps and then if we can feed them and shelter them in tents, our responsibility in the West is finished. And as a result, for these refugees will spend their lives and the children will spend their lives in refugee camps. And there's one other factor that you point to in your book. In the late 40s, Australia, Canada, lots of other countries felt they had a labor shortage and that they needed workers. Today, most countries don't feel they need workers. Most people feel it's a burden on their welfare systems to bring in more needy people. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, no matter the, the suffering, again, I don't want to downplay the suffering of the last million that I, that I talk about in this book, but these were extraordinarily resilient people and the circumstances were such that they could be and were resettled outside of their camps in Germany. That is not the case with today's refugees. Last question. How were you able to write this book? How were you able to face so much suffering for so many years and then such infuriating uh, opposition? The opening of your book alone is just a harrowing experience to read. You spent years immersed in this world. How did you do it? You know, we historians, as you know, we have this, you know, this passion, this drive to get the story right, to tell the story of those who cannot tell the stories themselves, to give voice to the voiceless. And that's what kept me going. You know, that these were people whose stories should be told, number one. Number two, I wanted to make it clear that wars do not end when the soldiers go home. The suffering of civilians in World War II and in the civil wars and wars between states that have followed has been intense. Wars bleed into post-wars and the suffering continues. And I felt an obligation to try to tell that story. David Nassau, his magnificent new book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. David, thank you for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. I'm not 
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.